Welcome everybody to the uh, about 24 hours into the retreat. We all came about 24 hours ago, settled in. So we've had about 24 hours of silence together and practice walking and sitting meditation. I don't know many people that would come back to a retreat if they were a lot like the first day. <laughs> um, raise your hand if you would come back because today was the best day. Like this, if, we, if they could all be like this, then I'm in a good place. <laughs> See, you're in good company. Uh, how many people felt some body pain today? Okay, yeah, yeah. How many people had sort of a restless mind that they couldn't, yeah, yeah. How many people had thoughts about leaving? <laughs> you can be honest, yeah. So it's actually quite intense what we're doing here, and I want to acknowledge that, that <clears throat> we're doing a very quick turnaround from how we are living in our contemporary society um, with all of its stimulation and busyness and all the ways that we demand our mind to behave and have trained our mind to behave in a very stimulating environment to handle traffic while texting, while also hiding that you're texting while you're driving in traffic. Very complicated to pull all that off and then also not get in an accident. So that's very, what's well, just one slice of a very complicated life, let alone all the uh, various modes of communication you're tracking and to remember how to keep track of uh, all those various threads of conversation and then all the responsibilities of modern life. What we're doing in that way is actually quite intense, but we call it normal. You know, this nervous system that we've developed, uh, this human nervous system, was finally developed uh, to be in a hunter-gatherer society. And then we very rapidly added on a, a, a huge transformation, but we call it normal. And then when we find it stressful, uh, we think that that stress is either normal or that we're not doing it right. When actually we're uh, doing something quite intense to our human animal nervous system, trying to have it behave in a modern context. And so that's actually very stressful. And when we come here, it is actually not stressful. We're sitting, we're walking, we're not overly stimulating ourselves. But why this first day is so difficult is that we're using ourselves so differently, one. So our muscles aren't used to sitting this long, being this still, our minds aren't used to being this still. But also you're tasting the ramifications of how you've used your mind up until now. So all that busyness and the out of control nature of it and that it won't stay still is a little bit indicative of what our lives are like but we don't notice because we're so preoccupied by the actual life. We don't know that we're spinning ourselves tremendously all day long, many days in a row, packing it in on the weekends and having a nightlife on a weekday and just all the things we're trying to do to ourselves and calling it normal. We stop today, just sit and walk, but you're feeling the intensity of what it's like what it's like actually out in our ordinary life. And so the analogy of the snow globe is, is common. 
where you take a snow globe and it's been resting on a shelf for a while and all the little snowflakes inside have settled. You take it and you spin it, and you spin it, you spin it, you put it back on the shelf, and it's now perfectly still, but it is spinning inside. And it takes a while for all of that intense, chaotic activity to begin to calm down and to begin to display some of the harmony inside of whatever is being displayed by the snow globe. Once all that chaos and all those chaotic currents begin to settle some, So it's really not the retreat that's causing this much turbulence, although we might blame the retreat for it. It's actually we are getting a first-hand experience of what our minds and hearts are like in ordinary life. And we can feel that the mind doesn't want to be present. It doesn't know how to stay present with something as simple and calming and benevolent as the breath. And it's lost a sense of awe that taking a step at all is a miracle. To feel a step, to actually have a body that can walk is a miracle we've long since taken for granted. And then we're looking for entertainment on top of that. But actually it's quite miraculous that we can breathe. It's quite miraculous that we can walk. I know this because I've done this practice enough to know that when the chaos settles, there is this natural beauty and grace to just breathing. And you can rest in a state of really nice, tranquil awe that you have a body at all. And to take a step when you feel all the little micro movements that happen to walk consciously on the planet, when you feel that type of harmony and beauty, that tends to be the outcome and tends to be why people come back to retreat. Except they forget that the first day (laughs) is that type of challenge And then they kind of wonder if they, but if you stick it out, if you stick it out, then a lot of that settling that we talked about uh, does happen. And it happens for many reasons. Some of it is due to your effort, so it's good to put in your effort. But some of it would happen even if you didn't put any effort at all. Just being in this environment would slowly settle and open you, would slowly settle your hearts and minds to being in a natural environment with beautiful views, not overly stimulated, really putting your cell phones down, closing your computers for a week, you would see this type of settling happen day by day, eating the good food that's here, being quiet, being around other quiet people. Just by being here, it's a radical act, let alone the efforts you put in into your actual uh, meditation practice. So the boat is launched, we're all on it, It's uh, going out to sea, it's got a strong engine, and you're just on the ride. And we all could relax some and have faith that we just stay here, do the sitting, do the walking, the settling inside that's been common. And many people have found over the course of 2,500 years, a type of beautiful settling and a type of orientation that uh, arises in the body, the heart, and the mind. When we learn this sort of settling presence, Um, you all get to taste some of that on this retreat because it's long enough that you all taste some of it. The world we live in is actually a chaotic world. And one of the things that we try to do as humans is we try to control it. And so controlling an uncontrollable environment 
is a frustrating task, but we're giving it a best, our best shot. So, you know, like a modern car has temperature control and you can play the right music and now it has a whole Bluetooth interaction with your phone so you don't have to get complicated wires. It has the cup holder that's the right size for the cup you bought. It fits right in that slot. Just so you can have this experience of driving and having it be a comfortable experience while driving. Homes are built with a lot of climate control and trying to give us some comfort. But the actual world we live in is full of change. You know, the mountains are rising and falling through the tectonic plates and the seasons are coming and going. The world is in, uh, is in its own evolution and we are in our own evolution as well. Society is changing year by year, faster and faster. A great uh, Tibetan teacher, American Tibetan teacher, American teacher from the Tibetan tradition named Pema Chodron said, if you are invested in security and certainty, you're on the wrong planet. And so that's some of what we're experiencing today too, is that we have this orientation that if we just worked a little harder, we could control things a little more and finally get our life settled and then we'd be kind of done. But there's a lot more chaos than that in a human life. So part of what we're doing here when we relax and open up is we relax and open up to the incredible amount of change that's happening and becoming more and more comfortable with the amount of change that's happening inside of us and outside of us and learning to be present even though things are changing in a chaotic, uncertain way. We don't really know what's coming next. For me, one one word I've been using a lot for myself to kind of guide myself in practice is streaming. I get the sense when I'm streaming in life, I'm just flowing through time and there's not a lot of resistance, there's not a lot of frustration. I'm not battling experiences. I'm navigating within them like you would on a boat on a flowing river. That's streaming versus controlling and trying to fixate and trying to have things your way and then finding reality is just, it won't behave the way you want it to, that being frustrating. So part of this practice is learning to relax into the stream of experience. And we do that by dropping in to simple experiences at first like just being in the body and feeling the stream of experiences when you breathe in and breathe out. Feeling the stream of experiences while you walk and you feel the shifting body weight back and forth and the way your bones move within your foot and feeling that step by step, you're streaming through time, not resisting what's happening, developing more capacity to be intimate with more aspects of your life and finding that that is not a frustrating experience. You're just streaming through time, not developing contractions, not developing frustrations, being able to experience more of your life without resistance or struggle. So it's an attitude that's underlying these practices, the attitude of relaxing, letting go, being at ease, the kindness that uh, Pascal was guiding us in earlier, that kind attitude while also being kind of more fluid and dynamic uh, so we're not caught up by the changing nature of life. This is an underlying attitude of these practices, an underlying attitude of this tradition, this spiritual tradition, learning to relax into the stream of experience.
Also by coming here, as we talked about last night, is you've put down a lot of burdens of your ordinary life. You might still feel the weight of them today. And your mind is still running through its habits of the things that you feel responsible for. But slowly we learn to put down the burden of all the things that we're carrying. Not necessarily the responsibilities, but the burden within the responsibilities, that softens over time. And softens as we learn to guide our attention from the habits of our mind, running to the future, running to the past, keeping track of lists, letting all that go, feeling the breath being embodied. Slowly over time, the burden of what we're carrying in our mind begins to become lighter. There's a famous uh, Thai teacher named Ajahn Chah, and he was walking one time in the forest with some of his students. And he looked at these huge boulders on this hillside, and as they walked by, he said, are those boulders heavy? Do you think they're heavy? And the students, very present, looked at the boulders and said, yes, those are very heavy. And he said, they're only heavy if you try to pick them up. If you leave them where they are, they're not heavy at all. (laughs) So a lot of our life is the way it is, and yet we take on this conscious or unconscious attitude that we have to carry these responsibilities. And under that, we, we... burden ourselves. Some of you can feeling tension in your neck and your shoulders, ways that we burden ourselves from within because we're holding a lot of responsibility. There are ways to be responsible that don't take on this incredible sense of burden. That's another thing we're going to learn here over the time is how to be present and be responsive to our environment without necessarily contracting under the weight of the responsibility, putting down our burdens Pascal and I were just on a road trip before the retreat. We went up to the Redwoods in Northern California and drove a little further north to the beaches of Oregon. And it's just, I'd seen the Redwoods a long time ago. Um, so I, I'd forgotten how huge they are. I actually walked out of the car and started walking on the path and we saw our first Redwoods. It's like, oh my God, they are just so incredibly huge. Now, <clears throat> if I tried to uproot one of them out of appreciation and bring one home with me, it'd be an impossible task. They're way, way, way too big. So I just let them be there. And to touch them was wonderful. They actually have soft bark for as big as they are. They're not hard, actually. They're made of soft wood. It might be why they're able to grow as high as they are. But in the gift shop, they, they've sprouted these little redwoods that you can take home with them. I saw in my mind, like, oh, I want like three of them. That'd be great. <laughs> I'll go home, I'll plant redwoods. And it's like, yeah. And then wait 1,500 years for them to be like, yeah. It's like, wait, I'll probably only see 50 years of that. <laughs> yeah, that probably wouldn't work out. But my mind was so, like, it wanted one. It loved them so much. It wanted to have a redwood that I could appreciate every day in my own backyard. It's like, no, you don't plant them near your house because they could completely crush the entire house and your neighbor's house and the house beyond it. So you don't take them home. You don't, you don't just take a redwood home, but it's funny, out of loving it, there was this wanting to kind of secure my relationship to it because I loved them so much. We didn't want to leave. But there's a way of kind of letting them go, appreciating them, and hope to come back, maybe. But they're up there. And then further north, as we drive to the Oregon coast, it gets really rocky. Um, and there's huge rock formations just off the shore these waves crashing on them. It's so dramatic. And we're walking on the sand amongst all this beautiful, um, rough Oregon coast. 
And I watch my mind want to take this home with me. It's like, ah, it's so far away. It's been so long since I've seen them. Like, how do I keep this? And it's like, just be present with it. And you'll be able to access it through memory, but you cannot hold on to this experience. You do have to let it go. So it's beautiful. You experience it and you let it go. It's beautiful. You experience it and you let it go. And it's nice to travel with other uh, Dharma teachers because if I get caught, he can remind me. If he gets caught, I can remind him. And then we had a third friend, also a Dharma teacher with us. Uh, And the three of us, it was really lovely to go walking and have this attitude, not trying to accumulate, hold on, or fixate, but be very intimate, very present, and appreciate what we were walking through. The Redwoods, the Oregon coast, where it's easy, but also through the towns and shopping and you know, other time, parts of the trip and then coming back. It's the same attitude, deeply appreciating where you are, but not trying to hold on to anything. It's another attitude, it's another way. It's not the way we're living in ordinary life so much, but you can train in that and then you can live more like that in ordinary life. That's part of what this retreat will give you is a sense of how you might begin to navigate your whole life with a lot more presence, a lot less holding on or fixa- fixation. Now it's funny to go to the Redwoods again because we talked to this one guy and uh, asked her what type of trip she take. Like, here's a seven mile trip you could take, but if you're really going for it, you could do this 12 mile hike. We're like, whoa, that'd be amazing. We did a mile and a half in about four hours because we're like, oh my God, oh my God. Take another step, oh my God, oh my God. And like, let's just sit down. People were walking by us, walking by us. and like, wow. And then we finally got to this point where there's a sign. It showed where all the trails were. It's like, God, this is so confusing. Like, I don't, like, we should be way past this. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. We've been walking for hours. Like, and then we have so many more miles to walk back. I was like, when we looked at the map, I was like, this can't be right. We're like, we're a mile and a half in. We've been walking for like three hours. And it's just a matter of just like, oh my God. Then you have the redwoods. And maybe they first open your heart. But then there's all these little tiny flowers and little tiny delicate things growing right next to them. It's like, oh my God, they're so beautiful. These tiny little flowers that look like little tiny yellow orchids. And so the next thing you know, we're on the ground, like smelling things and into it, like looking at it. And this it was such a feast of beauty to be in. And I couldn't have done that 20 years ago. I would have been too in my head and kind of like, I want to complete the mission. And, you know, we got seven miles to go. Sorry, Redwoods. I got a seven mile hike to do. And I'll, sometime I'll see you, but like, I got to finish the, and it's like, no, be in the experience and then walk as far as you want. And we didn't walk very far. We, and we started the next day and we started out every day with like full packs full of water and food just in case. And I brought clothing in case we got lost out there. And, and like, yeah, we've walked about 200 yards. <laughs> three things of water each and all this safety food in case we get lost out there. It's like, I think we can almost still see our car. <laughs> it, was just so, it was just so beautiful. Just so beautiful. And the same thing in the Oregon coast. Like, how far up should we get? And we made plans. Like, oh, let's really go up. And like the first beach we got to, like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. 
just pulled over into this parking lot and just wanted to camp there for days just to watch the tide come and go and uh, just be, it was so rich. Like, where are we trying to get to? Because the here is so beautiful. And the here is so beautiful. It's actually always so beautiful. But we get, we get welcomed in in easy locations. The Redwoods, the Oregon coast, here at Spirit Rock. Welcomed into the here. But if you stay loyal to the here, you find every here has something worth your full attention. Every breath actually has something. It's just not quite yet. It's not quite enough to hold your attention. But if you're loyal to it, at some point, every breath is a sacred act. To be, it's as beautiful as a redwood, that you can breathe in all, that you have a human body, and it doesn't matter what your human body looks like, that you have one at all is a miracle. And you get to live within that miracle. And it begins, the doorway in, is one breath at a time building that relationship. Yes, I'll be in this body, even though I have all these thoughts of elsewhere. I'll be in this body. I'll feel this one step. I'll taste the food on my plate rather than thinking of some other meal I could have. So that's the welcoming into here, welcoming into now. And as we settle into the here and now, it begins to go through all these changes because we're dynamic beings. The outside world is dynamic, the inside world is dynamic. And so what does that mean to be intimate, to be here, to be now, no matter what the moment is? It's a little bit of a, it just happens on brochures. Usually show people sitting and they have a little smile on their face and they look really calm, and everybody goes, oh, I'll, I'll have some of that. Yet the actual experience is the one you've had. It's all sorts of experiences. You'll sit there and sometimes you'll smile, and sometimes you won't, sometimes you'll be bored, sometimes you'll be excited, and then that will change. It's a constantly changing show. It never actually ends, the change. And you get used to, you get good at not knowing, not needing to know what comes next, but being willing to meet whatever comes next with this, type of intimacy, no matter what. And we grow capacity to have intimacy with life, no matter what. And fewer and fewer parts of life are not worth your not having intimacy. (laughs) They are worth having intimacy, they're not worth not having intimacy. Whatever, however you work that out, I'll let you struggle with that grammar. I'm moving on, folks. So we talk a lot about mindfulness. Uh, Mindfulness has a sort of a specific role in the heart and the mind, but then it grows to include a lot of things. And so mindfulness is just our ability, I'm using this word more and more, to be intimate with the moment. It starts with just even knowing what's happening while you're breathing. Do you even know that you're breathing? It's like, oh, wait, I forgot I was breathing, right? One breath, two breaths, wandering mind. Oh yeah, right. Do I know that I'm breathing? So just even knowing that you're breathing while you're breathing, that might be one beginning of mindfulness. As you stay there and you begin to feel the breath, you begin to feel how it plays out in your body. 
and you have a little bit more of the experience, and so it becomes a more full experience to be mindful of breathing. And then your heart and your mind go through changes and they a sort of a fatigue might roll in a certain part of the day and then an excitement comes and then tranquility comes and boredom comes and then creativity comes. So the mind is constantly changing. We try our best to be mindful of what it feels like as when we breathe while we're sitting, what it feels like to be in the body after the breath while sitting. We try our best to be intimate with what it feels like inside the body as we take one step. And then we see what it's like to take the next step. Just simply feeling you have this body, it's full of nerve endings. What's the actual direct body experience while you take one step? And then while you take the next step? What's the experience while sitting and breathing? So that's the sort of the primary development of mindfulness, becoming more embodied, feeling what happens in the body moment by moment, through the breath, through other body sensations while sitting, through the steps, other body sensations while walking, and then extending it and seeing what your body goes through, what you feel in your body while you're doing your work meditation, while you're cleaning the bathroom or cleaning pots and pans. One part of you is on the actual task Another part of you can actually feel inside your body while you're going through that task. What's it like to kind of lift the heavy pots and scrub them or to clean the forks or to sweep or mop? You can be present during those experiences. You don't just want to be present for the experiences that are easy to be present for. You won't develop much strength of presence. Start where it's easy, but also then extend into times that you might otherwise check out. Again, while cleaning, while doing automatic activities like brushing your teeth, you could check out or you could say, well, let's be intimate with what it feels like while I brush my teeth, with what it feels like to put on a shoe, what it feels like when I lay down at night. Let's be intimate with what I experience while I'm waking up in the morning. What's that process like? slowly over these many days, you're gonna gain capacity to show up in places you've never shown up before. They were just sort of automatic, kind of unconscious activity. I remember I used to be able to drive really complicated uh, routes to work and daydream the entire time. And I don't do that anymore. I'm not lost in thought like that because I'm more capable of actually being in my actual life and not spacing out on it. So what's it like to gently, yet uh, with some determination, feel what it's like as you pull on a sock? What's it like when you uh, tuck yourself in and wrap the covers around you at night? What's it like when you step on a hard stone and there's some pain in your foot? To actually be present as you go through all the, the entire day here and feeling moment by moment, starting where it's easy starting where you, it's supportive, but then inviting yourself to be present within all activities. There's a um, very classic Buddhist text called uh, The Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And in the language of that text, when they're describing how to develop mindfulness, it starts with the breath, then it goes to the four postures we've talked about, sitting, standing, 
lying down and walking. And then the next part goes into all activities. And so it's in this beautiful spiritual text. It actually says, are you present? Are you mindful while you're urinating and defecating? Are you mindful while you're eating? Are you mindful while you're going somewhere and when you're coming back from somewhere? Are you mindful when you're extending your limbs and when you're putting your limbs back close to your body? So it, it becomes all activities you want to be present for. You want to invite yourself to take curiosity and be intimate with the direct experience of what it's like to have a human life during a human day. And a human day is made up of many human moments all the way through. That's the invitation. And if you don't have to work too hard at it, but if you're gently persistent all through the days because you're here for so many days, you'll get to see what that's like. You'll get to see what an awaking, intimate life feels like. For the first few days, we want to give you um, really primary experiences to begin developing your presence with, developing mindfulness with, the breath, the body, uh, going to the five senses, pretty much bringing our attention out of the thinking mind and see what it's like to smell something, taste something, hear something, see something, and then to feel the world through our skin, feel our internal world, our body from within. And it's that intimacy so that you can f- actually have the experience from within. So the intimacy within the body, you could scan for what's the temperature like inside your body Is it just one temperature or some parts of your body warmer than others? That type of curiosity deepens your intimacy with being in your body. What parts of my body are carrying the weight of gravity? What parts of my body feel light or not carrying any weight? What parts of my body are made of hard things like my teeth? Where can I feel my bones? while I breathe, can I feel my bones while I walk? That's becoming more and more intimate with the body. It's beautiful to be intimate with the body. It becomes a base for then being intimate with your other senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and then touching the world. Ultimately, we can be mindful of thinking, but in the beginning, it's a little bit sticky. If you go, if your attention is drawn to thought, it tends to get mesmerized by thought, and then you're off into the realm of thought, but not that conscious. Several days in, you'll find you have capacity to even watch the experience of thinking happening. And then you get to decide, is this thought worth entertaining, or is this thought repetitive or not useful? Like, put it aside. The first few days, we just keep putting thought aside, developing our capacity to be more embodied, to go to the other senses, and to not be so mesmerized by the thinking process. That's the first development of mindfulness, coming to our body, come to the five senses, returning our attention from the way it gets transfixed by thinking. The next development of mindfulness is that we have to open up to a different range of experiences, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhat neutral. So it feels like the pleasant ones would be easy. We all want to show up for those. The unpleasant ones, nobody wants to have those. 
And the neutral ones, yeah, they're neutral. So we could take them, but they're not our first choice. Pleasure's the first choice. To deepen intimacy with life, to stream with life where there isn't this added stress, we have to be able to open up to pleasure, pain, and neutral, neutrality, neutral experiences. It's a question why you'd want to open up to pain and why if you could solve it quickly, why don't we just get rid of it? And that's sort of a worldly, that's how most people treat pain. If I can get rid of it quickly, I should. Let's just do that. One of the downsides of that is that <clears throat> there are some pains you can't get rid of. And so if your only strategy with pain is to get rid of it and then be kind of bummed out and defeated by it, you don't have the capacity of being intimate with life in a, in a lot of areas and a lot of times because to be human, the true human ride comes with a mixture of pain, pleasure, and neutrality. There's nobody on the planet, there's nobody on the planet that doesn't experience physical pain, physical pleasure, and physical neutrality. Emotional pain, emotional pleasure, emotional neutrality, mental pain, mental pleasure, mental neutrality. It's true for all humans, and it's probably true for all animals as well. It's just a part of the ride, and there's no strategy to get out of experiencing pain. There's no strategy that actually gets you out of feeling neutral experiences. So the unconscious default is to chase after the pleasant ones, to avoid the unpleasant ones, and to kind of be meh about the neutral ones. One of the problems is, is that if you go numb or fall away from the negative ones, you tend to go numb globally. You can't just shut out pain. So if you shut out pain, and they've, sh they've shown this through uh, neuroscience, if you shut out pain, you end up also shutting out pleasure. You cannot be selective about just shutting out one part of human experience. So if you, shut, if you don't like pain, you don't get much access to pleasure either. Then everything becomes sort of blandly neutral. If you're willing to open up to the fact that pain happens, and we can be responsive to it, so it's not just a matter of being passive when pain comes, but there are some pains that you can't get rid of. So you can practice in building your capacity. I'm gonna be conscious even though there's some pain in my body. I'm gonna be conscious even though some of my sense doors some of my other senses are giving some painful experiences. And then see if I can negotiate them and reduce the pain. But I'm not gonna check out. I'm not only going to kind of turn my attention elsewhere. I'm gonna see what it's like to experience some of the painful aspects of life. Not only does that increase your capacity to also feel a joy, but when developed, there's actually hidden gifts in opening up to some of the painful aspects of life. I've had pain in my body, um, small pains, you know, like very small, like, you know, paper cuts or whatnot. I've had sprained ankles, broken wrists, higher pains. I've had long illnesses that have uh, given me a lot of pain over many, many years. To be awake to this aspect of life, that it comes with some pain, opens up this beautiful realm that would be shut down otherwise. It's the beautiful realm of compassion that's so deep within this tradition is to open up to pain, not just because you want to be hard on yourself, but because when you really develop the capacity to be present 
when pain comes for yourself or for others, there's this beautiful aspect of the human heart that it actually can respond with warmth and patience and tenderness and loyalty and caring, even though the underlying experience is really painful. And some people find that the bonding that happens, even though it's caused by an unpleasant experience, there's a beauty in being able to meet the unpleasant experience with some patience, some steadiness, some capacity. And that, co- that compassionate aspect begins to actually outweigh the suffering that came from the pain, to have the capacity to meet the painful experiences of life. One example for me where that came was when I uh, was a volunteer at a hospice ward in San Francisco. And <clears throat> you know, death wasn't a new concept, but I'd never experienced people dying on that level. And so as much as I trained, as much as I wanted to show up my first day full of capacity to be conscious and present, when I was in a ward full of 20 people who were in some degree of their dying process, the first day I was overwhelmed. It's almost like the redwoods in reverse. It's so large, it's so huge. Rather than being opened up by it, I was just uh, shocked by it to actually see people who were, um, see that many people that were in a dying process. But I looked at the other volunteers and their hearts were open. They had warmth in their eyes. And they would hold the hands of the people who were dying. They would read to them or watch TV with them or just sit by their beds if they were asleep. And I noticed that these people were dying and we're all going to have to face that. Personally, people around us are going to die. But can we have capacity to be present just like you would for a redwood next to a beloved family member or a friend or a partner? More challenging, maybe a child. If they're going through a grave illness, a grave pain, or possibly even a dying experience. You want to train so that you can be present for those aspects of life that you won't automatically shut down because sooner or later we all get to experience them. So the little bits you're doing here, facing this day, you've developed some courage, some patience, just to even make it through the first day of a retreat, that actually stays in you. That capacity is building in you and then you can use it in many places. So again, going to like this hospice ward, sitting by the bed of a person, breathing, making sure that I was grounded, I was present, looking at my own emotions, first being okay with whatever emotions are happening, then learning to calm them down so I could be more present with whoever I was with. This practice here, sitting and walking, opened up that capacity there to be conscious on a hospice ward and then be with people while they were passing away. And there was a beauty that came out of it. The dying process is going to happen. It's natural. How do we want to grow our capacity to meet it? I wanted to grow my capacity to be present while it was happening. And there it was. People were dying, but they didn't have to die alone. And they didn't have to die surrounded by people who were overwhelmed by their dying. They could sit with people who would actually be with them steadily while they went through one of the more difficult aspects of life, which is passing away. They had company and people built their capacity to be loving in those moments. That capacity grew for me and for many people on the, the hospice ward out of the sitting walking practice because we knew how to feel our bodies. 
we knew how to work with our hearts and our minds, inviting them into the present, the warmth that uh, Pascal described, the presence and the training that Spring described this morning. So you can show up for the whole human ride with presence, with some relaxation, with some poise, with some perspective. So no matter what happens, you have some orientation. You don't just have compulsive activity of freaking out and needing something to stop because you can't take it or shutting down or running away. You actually can show up. It's not just for the difficulties in life, but those are some of the places that we shut down. When you train in that capacity, you actually then also have capacity to show up for some of the beauties of life. What it was like when uh, my sister's kids were born and I got to see many of them just shortly after they were born and holding them, it was very easy to be present with a newborn. Then I would notice <clears throat> a couple of days in, my mind would wander a little bit, still warm, but my mind would wander. It's like, no, I don't want to wander to just some dreary random thought. I'm going to actually bring my attention back and commit to being with this child. So the same thing you're doing here by committing to your breath, you can then apply that to other beautiful aspects of life. And you'll find you'll have capacity there. So not only is it beautiful in the moment to find the beauty of the breath, the beauty of a step slowly over the days here, being patient, but then it actually comes with you and you can find that capacity to be present in more and more aspects of your life. At some point in this practice, actually, <laughs> after my first retreat, um, I was 21, and uh, mostly with, there are a few other people in their 20s, but mostly everybody is in their 40s and 50s. And then <clears throat> the retreat was done, and we had a closing circle, and there, at that time, everybody was singing a little bit about the retreat. I, my first words of breaking silence is, why does anybody do this twice? I just can't even imagine why anybody does this twice. But a year later, I came back and I did it twice because it was just so rawly honest. It was just a very honest experience. It was difficult, but it was honest. This is a direct experience of the body. This is a direct experience of the mind. And I noticed second retreat, third retreat, I was able to build capacity and then it began to really be rewarding. So much so that I... I uh, spent a year living in Burma, one of the countries that this tradition comes from. And I got to ordain as a monk. And I got to work with a very fierce Burmese teacher. His name is Saida Upandita. And <clears throat> he didn't have a very, he had a very compassionate attitude that he wanted me free as quickly as possible. And free as quickly as possible was to not tolerate any of my whining. <laughs> and I was... I was giving it my all, but they, had, they had invite us in some really tough practices. So one of them is you go walking barefoot every morning to collect food for the day through the villages and you uh, beg for food. But <clears throat> this one, the first day that I ordained, we walked out and they were um, repaving a, a highway road we had to walk across. And they laid down all the crushed rock, but none of the tar over it to kind of drive across. And we had to walk across this barefoot. It was so excruciatingly painful that I went back to him the next day and I thought, God, I know what he's going to say, 
but I'm going to try anyhow to get out of this because it's so painful. Uh, Says, so my feet aren't used to this. It's really painful. I'm feeling the pain throughout most of the day. So I'm not sure what you'd suggest, but maybe uh, I should wait till they pave the road before I go out on these alms walks because um, it's just so incredibly painful. And just like a mountain, unmovingly, he looked back at me and said, more effort, more mindfulness. I was like, thanks. Not even a moment like, oh man, that must be hard. But you know, more effort, more mindfulness. Nothing like that. Just like more effort, more. The nice thing about it is that after a while, you never even had to actually ask his opinion. You know what his opinion was? More effort, more mindfulness. I was like, great. But <clears throat> I realized it was just unpleasant. It actually wasn't harming my feet. It was just more, something much more unpleasant than I ever had to experience. And I had to actually experience it because I was that mindful. So I met the experience and yeah, it was just unpleasant. It wasn't actually harmful. And I tried the same thing uh, when I ordained, it was January, it was very cold. And just wear these very thin um, sheets on your body. And I was shivering. I thought, oh, I'm gonna definitely get a cold. So I said, you know, I might have ordained too early in the year because it's so cold in the morning. And, and what did he say? More effort, more mindfulness. Yeah, you're just as good as he is. You could teach retreats in Burma. This got plug and play. Actually, I thought this little pull, this little doll with a little thing you pull the string. You know, more effort, more mindfulness. More effort, more mindfulness. Because it was basically, he trusted this practice more than I knew how to. And I just felt the cold in the morning. And it was, I'd never had to feel that cold for that long. But it wasn't actually bad for my body and I didn't get ill. It was just a fear of the mind. So a lot of things began to open up with that fierce attitude. Apply yourself with mindfulness. Be intimate with that experience. Stop haggling in your mind whether that you should be having this experience or not. Can you get out of this experience or not? Have the experience, no matter what it is. Be the first person ever to actually die of boredom. You could do it. <laughs> I know, I believe in you. You could do it. You could be that first person. Like, it's so boring. Just the breath. Oh my God. Have the experience and see what happens. What you'll notice is that it only lasts so long before something else comes through. And that only lasts so long before something else comes through. The best ride is being present for all of it, no matter what, and letting it come and go, letting body sensations come and go, letting the breath come and go, letting visual experiences and auditory experiences, being very intimate with them all, and letting them all come and go. Intimacy without clinging. That's actually the, the best ride you can have through life. Intimacy without clinging. That attitude is what we're cultivating, breath by breath, step by step, all your little efforts throughout the day, intimacy without clinging. So we apply our mindfulness within the body to feel the body, feel the breath and the body steps. We then apply it to our five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, we courageously and patiently open up our capacity to feel pleasure come and go, pain come and go, 
neutral experiences come and go. That's the invitation. And it will happen whether you put effort in or not. It'll just happen a little quicker if you're willing to have these experiences. But over the days here, you'll find you're going to build your capacity for these. The last place for tonight to deepen your intimacy with life is to notice how quickly experiences actually change. The more intimate you are anywhere, one of the aspects that comes through intimacy is seeing change. If I'm not that intimate with the body, it doesn't seem to change very much. If I'm very intimate with the body, it's pulsing because of my heartbeat. It's bellowing because of these, this breath. There's different temperature change as my body goes through its uh, internal temperature control. My mouth gets a little drier, then it gets a little wetter. The body is actually constantly changing. It doesn't appear to be that changing because we're not that intimate with it. And the changes are subtle many times. But as you become more intimate with the body, you, be, you discover its changing nature. As you become more intimate with the mind and more intimate with the heart, you see they're also changing. So a certain mood might come up. You might be very angry or irritated or impatient. And it lasts much longer than you want to. And you can't do anything about it. You can't distract yourself. You can't do your normal uh, maneuvers on the emotions you're having. So you find yourself bored and nothing you can do about it. You find yourself happy and it lasts for so long. You find yourself irritated and it lasts for so long. But even within that, there are, it's constantly changing. Anger is not a monolithic experience. It comes on like a strong wave and then there are ripples within the wave where it gets a little hotter and cooler and hotter and cooler over a long arc of being a little bit pissed off because something happened. And then it begins to kind of break apart and it turns from anger into sort of a sullenness. And there's a little mood after that. It's actually not one experience. I was angry for four hours. You have to be pretty checked out to only have had one experience for four hours. If you really feel it, there's a lot going on all the time with our emotions. And even faster with the mind. The mind is just so incredibly fast in how it uh, twists and turns, goes to the past, the future, has opinions about this and opinions about that, counter opinions, and then forgets what it was even thinking about. It goes off in a new direction. I used to entertain myself a little bit on the long days of practice in Burma <clears throat> where I just sit there and it's like, where are we going to go next? I'm with my breath and somewhere between one and 20 breaths, somewhere in there, closer to one, <laughs> if I was going to be honest, somewhere in there, my mind is going to go somewhere. Where is it going to go? And I say, yep, wow, I went to the, I went to the past. You know, my third grade teacher, just remembered who she was, back to the breath. I was eat popcorn, like, okay, now where are we going to go? Whoop, to the future. I'm worried about, you know, the way the presidential race is going to turn out. Like, okay, future, back to the breath. Where are we going to go next? And it goes into engineering. I wonder if black holes really exist and how they could really exist. I mean, that much mass, that small space, is that really possible? It's like, oh, we're in engineering mind. Back to the breath. Where are we going to go next? Why do they call it tiddly winks? I wonder why they call it tiddly winks. That's kind of a funny name. I wonder if there was something like tiddly winks at that time. It was close enough to whatever that was that the game got the name. Like, okay, back to the breath. Where are we going to go next? It's amazing. 10,000 directions. Your mind will go in 10,000 directions from the breath. It's a fun game. 
one way to keep yourself sort of entertained <laughs> while you're sitting here and breathing. Where's it going to go next? And then let go of that. Come back to the breath. Where's it going to go next? You don't take too much interest in where it's going to go next because it's going to go there anyhow. You take interest in the breath. But somewhere along the line, you'll get drawn into some type of fantasy of the future, worry of the past, curiosity about how something works. You'll remember this, you'll think about that. It's amazing. And it just doesn't stop. It's amazing how creative and compelling all this activity of mind is. We learn to release it all. You can prove to yourself over time that none of it is worth really grabbing onto because you'll grab onto it and then realize at some point it, you let go of it, it got boring or whatever. Or you could take the radical act that none of it over these days is really worth grabbing onto and you really could let go of all of it except a little bit of understanding about time and where your yogi job is, <laughs> what time the next sit is, a little bit of organizing. But most of what your mind is going to produce you could so easily let go of and just come back and be in the body. And whether you do that or not, it's the progression that many people experience as they practice. The ability to be entertained but not take your own mind so seriously and see that it's creative and does create beautiful things. A lot of things it creates are not really worth your time, so more easily you let it go. And then you live more in the awe of the now. And the now is not necessarily more impressive. The now is a lot like it is now. This is the now. <laughs> You're already in the now. But the ability to be um, peaceful in it, to be intrigued by it, to be loyal to the, the very present moment that you're in, that tends to increase over time. And it increases through practice because that's what you're practicing. Being loyal with simple experiences like the breath. Being loyal with simple experiences like body sensations while you sit or while you walk. Being loyal to what it's like to take one or two conscious steps at a time on the planet. Loyal to actually taste the food that the cooks have prepared. Loyal to what it feels like as you go through your yogi job and you clean the plates or sweep the floor or chop the vegetables, whatever your task is. Loyal while you're going to bed, what that whole process is like for you. Loyal to your own life when you're waking up and what it's like to open your eyes and get out of bed and get dressed whether you take a shower or not, whether you brush your teeth or not. Be loyal to all of it. Be gently committed to be loyal to all the aspects, all the moments of the days of this retreat. And it becomes an attitude that you can take to more and more places of your life. And then your life doesn't have to entertain you. You get entertained by life. If you want life to be entertaining, you have to go to really crazy places like Las Vegas or the Redwoods or something to kind of hold your attention because your attention's a little flimsy. So you need the experience to do all the work. You need bright lights or you know, 300 foot tall trees and like it holds your attention for you. But you can develop your attention so that anything, your attention can be held by anything. And then as you're walking through life, you get to be held by those experiences. 
the ordinary experiences are lovely enough, but you definitely want to have this capacity when life gets extremely beautiful, because you don't want to miss those moments and be checked out, or when it gets very difficult, you want to have capacity to be present during those times. And life will go to, in all these directions. And that's what we're practicing here, breath by breath and step by step. So with that said, let's take this momentum and go into a moment of practice together. We're not going to practice for very long, probably just a few minutes. So if you're comfortable enough in the posture you're in, you can stay in it. So relaxing, inviting your heart, your mind, and your body to let go of any holding, let go of any sense of burden. And see if you can find some resting contentment in these simple experiences, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Can there be some ease? And to support that, you might bring your attention into your body. See if you can feel the stream of body sensations anywhere in your body, your hands, your feet, your face. And one easy place to feel it is the breath. So anywhere you're feeling body sensations, just to support your ability to be present with the moments of life we're in. And you can welcome an attitude of interest. You can put aside your preferences for what you wish were happening and see if you can become more intimate and more interested in what is actually happening. First with your body, then with your other senses. allowing whatever moods or emotions are present to be present. Allowing the experience of thinking as thoughts come and go.
And then the light training begins as we deepen our loyalty with what it feels like as we breathe. Not by bringing in tension, but just welcoming some curiosity, some steadiness of attention to what it feels like in your body as you do this natural process of breathing. In a moment, I'll ring the bell and that will invite you to be intimate with what it feels like as you open your eyes and stand. And as you take the flow of your experience out through the doors and do some walking meditation and see what steady, gentle, loyal intimacy is like with the evening air and walking step by step, inside or outside. Gently and persistently keep inviting yourself to be open to all your experiences. And notice how they change and be open to whatever arises next. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.